Okay, when I was a student um, in Edinburgh, so we are going back, believe it or not, like 20 years or more, um, I took, as a student, I took a part-time job. I'm sure you know what it's like for students. Sometimes they want a very easy-going part-time job on the side to try and help pay some of the bills. Uh, So that's what I did. I applied for and I landed, wait for it, I landed a job as a driver for a sports car garage. A driver for a sports car garage. Now here's the thing. I thought this was going to be the easiest gig in all of the world. I went in with such hope. I thought my feet would be up a desk for most of the day and only occasionally taking out a fancy car to deliver it to a client, maybe once a day, something like that. Oh, was I wrong? <laughs> like from minute one in this job, I was set to work. I had to work hard for my cash. I had to serve all of the other members of staff. I was at their beck and call. I had to clean the garage floor. I had to clean all the cars, even the intricate bits and the wheels and so forth. And I would come home after every shift and I would be tired, sweaty, disgusting, you know, ready for my bed. And I couldn't believe how naive I had been, you know. There was me thinking, what is going to be, uh, it's going to be the easiest job in the world. And what I thought was an easy job turned out to be nothing but hard labor. It was hard, hard graft. I'm sure you feel really sorry for me uh, just now. Now, why begin a sermon like that? Well, I think actually you and I, perhaps guilty of making a similar mistake when it comes to the Christian life. You know, when we're much younger or when we first come to faith in Jesus, there's this naivety about us, isn't there? We think, oh, we've come to Christ, we're saved, we belong to God. The Christian life is going to be a breeze. The Christian life is going to be easy. And what do we know now, Christian friends? We no, 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 no. Nothing can be further from the truth. That though we are not working nor serving to merit favor from God. What do we know as Christians? The Christian life is hard graph, right? Like, not only are we called as Christians to really, really fight and strive against our sin, but what's the calling of the Christian life? We are to serve. As the people of God, we're to serve. We're to serve Jesus. We're to serve the church. We're to serve one another. Well, thus far in the book of Numbers, we have seen, if you've not been here, we've seen a lot about what are called Levites. Uh, We've seen that they are to help the high priest. The Levites are to guard the temple. But this morning in chapter 4, what happens is that the focus just shifts a little bit. And the attention this morning is actually on the hard graft that these guys have to do, the hard labor that the Levites have to undertake. And this is what I pray will happen this morning. This is what I believe passionately will happen. That God will speak to us through his preached words. And yes, he's going to show us as Christians that we are to serve. And that would be hard labor. But I, I pray that God shows us how we can do that in an enthused way. And we can serve, even people like you and me, we can serve for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to enthused Christian service for Jesus' name. 
Okay, now, can I ask you, first of all, to turn with me to the book of Numbers? Can we make sure that we've got this uh, portion of Scripture? What, what page did I say? 111, I think, if you're using the church Bible. But if you're using it on the phone, your iPad, whatever, you, let's have the text in front of us as we consider the first of three things this morning. The first thing is we're reminded here about who we serve. Who we are as Christians to serve. That's the first thing, who we are to serve. So are you ready to get into this chapter of scripture? Are we? Yeah. Lily's got her raisins in the front row. She's ready to go. Okay. All right. Now, do you remember if you were here, do you remember how we uh, begun this sermon series all those weeks ago? You remember? We begun with me imploring you to read the book of Numbers. You remember that? I stood up here begging you to read ahead in this book. Now that we're a little bit into this book, maybe we can all recognize why I was pleading with you to do that. These chapters are hard, aren't they? Like if we just read them once and skip, I mean, they're long, right? They are uh, complicated. There's a lot going on in these these chapters. So I'm not trying to patronize anyone here. Really, I'm not. I just want to check. Did we all kind of get Numbers chapter 4? Did we? Did we see the big picture of what's happening here? It wasn't easy, was it? But what God is doing in this chapter of Scripture, he takes one of the tribes. So it's the tribe of Levi. And he breaks that tribe into its three component parts. So it's three families in the tribe of Levi. So let me try and get them. The Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. So God takes, he breaks the Levites into three tribes. And did you see what he does? He delegates to them different responsibilities in the transportation of the parts of the tabernacle. Did we all follow that? We did, didn't we? God delegating, God giving them responsibilities with the transportation of the tabernacle. For this point, like just for right now, you and I, let's think about that first section and the Kohathites. So did you get what they were to carry, the Kohathites at the start, everyone? They were in charge of the holiest items, weren't they? Did you notice that? So the Kohathites at the beginning, they weren't bothered with the sort of tabernacle gate or the fence around the tabernacle. It was the real kind of sacred stuff that the Kohathites are to carry. You know, the lampstand and the bread table, the bread the presents and the, the altars. And these Kohathites were to carry with them the very ark of the testimony itself. Now, you'll excuse me at this point, okay? If I just speak to the kids... Because it's a complicated portion of scripture and I want to take the children with us as we journey with the Levites, if you like, okay? So boys and girls, you listen to me, okay? I've just said that the Kohathites are to carry the ark. The ark. Do we know what we're dealing with? We're dealing with the ark. Nobody say anything about Noah, all right? Okay, nothing to do, it's nothing to do with Noah whatsoever. So I'll, I'll explain what the ark was, okay? So the ark was this Quite big golden box or a golden chest. And it was in the innermost part of this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And listen to this. The the ark was the place from where God spoke to Moses. And this is a really great way of remembering what the ark was about. The ark was a footstool. It was God's footstool. It was the place from 
where God's throne was said to symbolically rise. That's the ark. And who's carrying it? The Korathites are carrying it. Okay? Now back to everybody else. Okay. A few years ago, there was a story that hit the headlines in Scotland. And it was a story about a nuclear power station in Scotland. Maybe you saw this. Maybe you can remember it. It transpires what had happened was that nuclear material was being carried and transported through Scotland, from the north of Scotland all the way south, without the public's knowledge. (laughs) And you know what Scots are like, right? So there was a big outcry about this. You can maybe see why there was an outcry, can you? Like if you're bringing nuclear material past my house, (laughs) like I kind of want to know about it. Like, I want to know that you're taking all the appropriate precautions with this stuff, okay? Now, you see where I'm going, can't you? I mean, isn't there a similar atmosphere in Numbers chapter 4? Because you must, friend, when Adrian came and read this, you must have noticed all of the safeguards and all the precautions that needed to be taken with these holy objects. Did you notice them? In fact, do this with me. Look at the start of the chapter. Just skim over the first bit to see the precautions. See the detail of them. Now, did you notice this? That most of these sacred objects have to be wrapped up in the same way. Did everyone pick up on it? So most of the objects, they have to have cloth. And then they are wrapped in goat skin. And then they're carried by poles. Did everyone notice that? Now this will test whether you're really awake and really switched on. Did you notice that the ark was very different to that? Now did you notice that the ark was actually to be wrapped in the reverse order? So it's not with the ark cloth and then goat skin. Do you see it with the ark? It's the reverse order. It's let's wrap it in a veil. Let's wrap it in goat skin and then... God specifies wrap it lastly in a blue cloth. So can you imagine just looking at all of these items just now? If they were in front of us here, what would you see? They would all be wrapped in goatskin. You would see goatskin, goatskin, goatskin. Then it comes to the ark. What do you see? The ark is blue. The ark, everything else is goatskin. The ark is blue. At this point here, I need to ask you what question do you have? Can I tell you what question I've got about this portion of scripture? I've got a lot of questions about this portion of scripture. I tell you what I'm asking here. Why blue? I mean, why does the almighty God specify the actual color of the cloth? Do you see what I mean? Like, I mean, is it God's favorite color? Like, why does he specify the ark has to be blue? Well, I need you to appreciate this, that color very often in the Bible carries symbolic meaning. Okay, the color very often in the Bible means something. Blue is no exception to the rule. So I need you desperately to listen to this. There are two main meanings to the color blue in the Bible. Okay, here's, here's the first one. You'll, you'll listen to me if I read you a verse, will you? Try and pick up on it. So this is Exodus 24 verse 9. See if you can get the meaning of blue here. What a verse this is. You ready for it? So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Bihu, 70 elders, they ascend Mount Sinai, and we read this. And they saw God. 
And there was under God's feet, as it were, a pavement of blue, a pavement of sapphire stone, then we read, like the very heaven. So do you see, we're asking, well, what, what was, what's the significance, the symbolism with blue? What do you get there? Blue is the color, friend, of heaven. Blue is the color of the very presence of God, you see? But what did I say a minute ago? Come on. I said, I said two meanings to the color blue. Okay, so please zone in for this. Blue in the Bible, especially if it's in conjunction with the color purple, as in Numbers 4, blue is the color of kings. Blue in the Bible is the color, especially with purple. Blue is the color of royalty. And if you know your Bible right now, I know your, 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 your brains are sparking and you're skimming through the Bible to see if that's right. Blue is the color. Blue is the color of royalty, aren't you? And where do you get to? You get to the beginning of the book of Esther. And you're shown at the beginning of the book of Esther a royal tent, like here, royal tent. And how do we know it's royal? Because it is adorned in blue and purple hangings. And then you skim on in the Bible and you get to the book of Ezekiel and you see kings in the book of Ezekiel. How do you know that they're kings? Because they are dressed in blue and purple robes. And when you see that and you hear it, don't you now see what's going on in Numbers chapter 4? By God insisting that the ark be wrapped in blue. What is he doing here? He is reminding those Kohathites of who it is that they serve. Friends, what are these Levites doing? Are they just lugging boxes around? Are they just carting around crates? God is reminding them that in this service, they are serving the one. It's God. They're serving the God of heaven. They're serving the God who reigns. Now, it may well be this morning that you're visiting London City Presbyterian Church because of certain baptism that will happen later on. Or maybe you've missed some of the sermon series and maybe right now in here you're thinking, they're just, come on, there cannot be any meaning, relevance to these Levitical chores. Are you thinking like that? Are you... I want you to see that, that honestly nothing could be further from the truth. And to bring that out, I want to do this just now. I want to set a question for you to wrestle with, especially if you're a Christian in here. I want to ask you a question. Please wrestle with it for a moment. So Christian friend, pl- please hear this. What would you say is the greatest stumbling block to enthused Christian service? Like I think... If we're Christians here, we can all look back on times that Christian service was a real pain in the neck. Didn't it seem like that? Can you not look as a Christian back in times where Christian service just seemed like a burden? It seemed like hard work and just a responsibility and a duty that you could do without. Why was that? What was the cause of that? What What would you say to me? There's a lot of reasons, aren't there? I want to suggest this. Please hear it. The Christian service seems it's hardest when we lose sight of the God that we serve. Isn't that right? The Christian service seems most burdensome. It is at its hardest when our love for God, our passion for Christ, our zeal for the Lord Jesus seems at its lowest ebb. Is that not correct? Well, do, do you not see, if you're a Christian, why this portion of Scripture should excite you and inspire you? Because what's God doing in Numbers chapter 4? He's not just speaking to the Levites. He's reminding 
you, you, who it is that you serve. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Like if you're a Christian here, what are you doing later on today, some of you, when you are bringing people into your home and try to show them hospitality? What is that that you're doing? Do you, do you begin to see it? Do you put the pieces together this morning? Or what are you doing if later this week you're going out into the workplace and you're trying to be a Christian witness in Jesus' name and try to speak to your family or your neighbors about Christ Jesus? What is that? Do, do you see what it is? You are getting to serve the King of Kings. Like as God in Numbers chapter 4, he chooses the Kohathites for this beautifully privileged act of service. Guess what he does? He's chosen you for something similar. As a Christian, as you go out and you labor for, for Jesus' name, you're getting to serve the great king, the one king, the Davidic king. You get to serve the one who, at the end of all things, at whose name every knee is going to bow. And isn't that a privilege? And isn't it actually something that really should adjust and infuse our Christian service with some meaning? Because what are you doing, Christian friends, when you later on, you do the teas and the coffees? In Jesus' name, and you steward, or you sort out the chairs, or you witness, or you show hospitality. What are you doing? Listen to me. You are getting to carry forth a big blue box into the world. That's Christian service, isn't it? You do these things in Jesus' name. You join the people of God in holding high to the world, the very throne of Almighty God. So we see, we're reminded who we are to serve. A second thing we're reminded about here is how we are to serve. How we are to serve. Okay, so we move on in this chapter. What I want to do is set a scenario for you to wrestle with and think about. A scenario, really simple scenario. Okay, this is it. I want you to imagine that this morning you have brought to church someone who is not a Christian. That's not that unusual. Maybe you've actually done that. That... I suppose the peculiar thing about this scenario is I want you to imagine you've brought somebody who's not a Christian into church and it is a person who has never, ever, ever read the Bible. Right? That's a bit peculiar. So you brought somebody who has never even read a verse of the Bible, never, never heard a Sunday school story, never heard a sermon, nothing at all. Okay? So there's your scenario. Right? Now, my question is this to you. What impression do you think that person would have about God? from Numbers chapter 4. What do you think? So they've never read the Bible ever in their lives. And they come in and Adrian gets up. The first exposure to Scripture is Adrian reading Numbers chapter 4. What impression do you think they've got of God from this chapter? What would you, what would you say? They're going to think God is precise. Agreed? They're going to think that God is a God who is amazingly committed to his people if he's going to dwell and travel with them like that, right? Everyone's got that. Now, do you agree with this? That the primary impression that they're going to have from God in Numbers 4 is that God must be a holy God. I mean, isn't that what sings from this portion of Scripture? That God is a God of holiness. Now, now, stick with me. And analyze that for a second. Follow-up question for you. What is it in this portion of Scripture that speaks of God's holiness? 
Like, how does that person get the impression that God is holy? Because God doesn't appear, does he, in this chapter? God is not manifest some way in this chapter. So how does the person get that impression? It's not a trick question. How would you answer that? How do we know God is holy? Is this not it? We know God is holy from the care that has to be taken of these items that are used in worship. Isn't that the answer? Like, the, these things have to be wrapped up and nobody can even glance at them. Like, these things have to be carried that nobody can even touch them. Doesn't that scream at the reader, God is transcendent? We can't even look at these items. That speaks to us, that shows us God is a, God is a holy God. This is what I want you to do. I want you to just put that on a shelf for a moment. Because I want to talk to you about a pattern that I've seen developing uh, through this sermon series. How long have we been in this uh, sermon series? Five weeks, Harrison says, reliably. Five weeks. So you mean five weeks? I think nearly every week the same thing has happened. So not every week, but nearly every week the same thing has happened. And that is that at the end of the service, I go at the door, as I always do, and nearly every week, somebody has come to me and said the same thing. It's usually a visitor, and they come and they say at the end of this, they say, it's really unusual that you're looking at the book of Numbers, because historically we've just ignored this dense Old Testament stuff. So not every, not every week, but most weeks, somebody's come and said, oh, we find it really strange that you're doing the book of Numbers because we have hitherto thought the Numbers is completely irrelevant to us in our lives. And I know right now that there's some people who think that's a shocking attitude to Scripture. And I also know more than likely there's other people in this room who are thinking exactly that just now. After all... What am I talking to you about right now? I'm talking to you about sacred items <laughs> used in worship that are supposed to communicate the holiness of God. And so what are you thinking? You're thinking, that's relevant because in a Presbyterian church especially, we don't, we don't have <laughs> holy items that are used in worship that are supposed to communicate. You're thinking, this is totally irrational and irrelevant to us, right? You're, you maybe you're thinking, I want you to see wrong, wrong. I want you to understand that right now, there are items used in worship that are supposed to communicate the holiness of God. Do you not see what those things are? What are they? Christian friend, you are those items. You are that sacred vessel. Don't you see it? What is the calling that God has laid upon your life? It's to be like these sacred objects and sacred light in Numbers chapter 4. We are supposed to, in worship, communicate God's holiness to the world. What does Romans 12 tell you in light of what Jesus Christ has done? What are we supposed to do now? Present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. And if you recognize that comparison, that parallel here, do you, I wonder as a Christian, do you not feel the weight of the challenge on your life in Numbers chapter 4? What is the challenge in this portion of scripture? If you bear in mind that correspondence, what's the challenge? Like these objects, you and me, we're to pursue holiness. We are to seek to maintain holiness like these objects in the tabernacle, friends. You and I are to seek to be free from defilement, 
free from contamination, free from sin, that we might all the more and all the more clearly point people to the holy character of our God. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you're sitting there and you agree with me, that is hard. Graft isn't the work of sanctification, it's hard work. But I really do, really do believe there is help in this portion of Scripture for us. Because did you not notice this? That there are degrees of holy items and holy objects in this portion of Scripture. Everyone got that, did you? That if you start at the outside of the tabernacle and you work in the way, what happens? The nearer you get to the ark, the nearer you get to the presence of God, the more sacred these objects become. And isn't there help there for us in our battle for sanctification? What's true of you and of me? The nearer we get to God, the holier we become. Isn't that right? The more intimate fellowship we have with our king, the more like him you and I will be. And what does that enable us to do? Serve. Serve, but not just in routine, not in dryness, not just in habit, but we can serve God with the holiness that he so clearly desires. So we see who we are to serve and we see how we are to serve with holiness. And then we're closing and ending with a third thing. And that is that we are to serve. Who we are to serve, how we are to serve, that we are to serve. Okay, I think I'm right in saying this. You can fight with me later if you think I'm wrong. I think I'm right in saying that one of the main themes of the book of Numbers thus far has been this. That every member of this ancient covenant community has got a job to do. Everyone's got a job to do. Would you agree with that? If you've been for the sermon series. Have we not seen that generally speaking in Numbers 1 to 4? Everyone's got a job to do. The high priest has got a job to do in the tabernacle. If you're a certain age, you've got to be in the army. Isn't that right? If you're a certain age of Levite, you've got to be guarding it. Everyone's got a job to do. Everyone's got a job to do. And then we've seen it generally, but we've also, do we not this morning see that same theme very specifically in Numbers chapter 4? Isn't it incredible what God does by the end of this chapter? You think, what was the number? What was it? 8,580 Levites are individually each given a job to do by God. And some of those jobs are really seemingly kind of small jobs. Like somebody there was given a tent peg (laughs) to carry. And some of the other jobs are kind of surprisingly privileged jobs because the Kohathites were not the eldest in that tribe. And yet they are given the ark to carry. So there might be small jobs to do. There might be surprising jobs to do. But what's the theme here? Everyone in this covenant community is given a role to, to do by God. What do you think I'm going to say? Many of you think I'm going to run as fast as I can at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because what does the Apostle Paul tell us there? That same delegation of responsibility is to be prevalent, present in the New Testament church. Isn't that what Paul says? He says that you, me, we are a body. We're all members of a body. Paul tells us that we're given gifts and they're to be used. How? Just like Numbers 4. We are to use these gifts for the forward advance of the people of God. 
aren't we? Everyone's got a job to do. You'd expect me to go to numbers 12. I don't want to do that. Instead, I need to speak to you here as we're bringing things into a conclusion about ages. And I want to ask you to do something with me, even the kids, the boys and girls. Can everyone look at verse 3? Now we're bringing things in a conclusion with us. So you can look to verse 3 with me. Now I have mentioned verse 3 already in this sermon series. So some of you, it jumped out at you. But what we're looking at, it's not all the Kohathites, and it's not all the Gershonites, and it's not all the Merites that are to serve in this way, is it? Who is it? Do you notice that there's an age restriction? So it's just those who meet this this profile of being from 30 years to 50 years. Why do you think that is? Why? Maybe to avoid levity, carelessness. But think about it. It is only people who are approaching true maturity. Or listen to this. Isn't it people here who are in the prime of their life that are called by God to serve in a special and sacred way? The people in the prime of their life. Now, if we're applying this as we have to do to London City Presbyterian Church, do you not see how relevant this is to us? Have a look around. I mean, have a look around. I mean, okay, we don't necessarily meet strictly this age profile. What is true of our congregation? What is peculiar about our congregation here? Do you see it? This is a congregation largely made up of people who are approaching maturity. A congregation made up of people who are who are in the prime of their life. We're not a kindergarten. We're not a Christian union, a student union. We are not a particularly elderly congregation, are we? And so because of that, I really need to stand and I need to appeal to you. And I honestly, I've prayed through this and I've thought through it and I want you to hear it. Today, Christian friend, is the day to serve the Lord. Today. And not tomorrow, and not next year, and not when you grow up. Today is the day of Christian service. And I need you to appreciate that there are churches up and down this country that are filled with regret. I mean, there really are. There are, there are elderly people in our churches up and down the land, and they are looking back on their lives and wishing that they'd done things differently. And they're wishing, they're wishing they'd served more their God where they had time and when they had health and ability to do it. And I am pleading with you as a congregation to do that today. Like to reorientate your life, analyze your life and serve more your God and your King. Why? That we might join these Levites and holding high the royal throne in this world. And I, and I, I close, I bring it all to, to an end because do you know, I have to do right now what we do at every, the end of every service. And I have to speak to you if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again in Lord Jesus Christ and you may, it's warm in here, right? And we're, we're in a really technical portion of scripture and it's difficult and you may not, you may have drifted away with your attention. Come back if you're not a Christian and hear this if nothing else. Hear this. There is a detail here that you might have missed in this portion of scripture and I hold my hand up as a minister and say, I read this too quickly and I missed this detail first time round. wonder if you got it. That it was not the Kohathites 
who had to cover the holy items. Did you get that? Did you get the fact that the Kohathites at the beginning of this chapter had to stand outside of the tent and they had to wait for the high priest first to do his work? The high priest had to go into the tent, had to cover those items that the high priest first had to make safe the presence of God. I wonder if you're not a Christian, if you see any meaning in that for your life. I need you to appreciate that one day every one of us, every one of us, will stand before God and we will see with our own eyes the unveiled holiness of the Almighty. And the only way that that moment will not bring condemnation and judgment on you is if Numbers 4 has happened. The only way you avoid condemnation is if in your life and for you, the high priest has first done his work. And you see what I'm getting at, don't you? The Lord Jesus Christ has made safe the presence of the Almighty. He at that cross at Calvary has has made it safe, not by a covering of blue, not by goat skin. He has made safe God's presence by his own spilt blood. If you are not a Christian, to be made right with God, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I appeal to you to do that. I urge you to believe in Jesus and today to join the people of God in our privileged, precious service in the service of the King. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. We thank you that it speaks of your holiness. You are a thrice holy God, and we are a people who are stained with sin. We are grateful for the work of our great high priest. And we look at this Eleazar in this chapter, who is given oversight of the service of the tabernacle. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you stand over us in the church. You orchestrate, you supervise our service. Help us, O God, to serve in an enthusiastic way for your eternal glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.